Hello, and welcome back to the Previously On podcast. We're continuing with our first season by taking an in-depth look at Avatar The Last Airbender, and more specifically, the first book of that series, Water. My name's Brandon Berger. I'm Evan Muse, And I'm Maxwell Anderson. And together, we're our own sort of team avatar. We're very excited to keep our conversation going as we navigate our way through this incredibly iconic series. For the second episode of this podcast, we'll be taking a look at chapters three and four of book one. Previously on Avatar. Here's some more information about chapter three, the Southern Air Temple. It's the third episode of the first season and is the third official episode of the show. It was written by just one of the series creators, Michael Dante DiMartino, and also sees a new director, Lauren McMullen, who you may also know from her other animated work, which includes multiple director credits for The Simpsons and King of the Hill. Currently, she works for Walt Disney Animation Studios, where she's specifically worked on the storyboards for two of my favorite animated movies, Wreck-It Ralph and Zootopia. She's also the first woman to have solely directed a Disney animated film, when she directed the 2013 Oscar-nominated short film, Get a Horse. The Southern Air Temple originally aired on February 25th, 2005. Here's a quick synopsis of Chapter 3. The gang travels to the Southern Air Temple where Aang grew up. Aang is excited to show his new friends his home, but is surprised to find it completely empty after his 100-year absence. In remembering his talks with Monk Gyatso, Aang decides to enter the sanctuary where he was told there would be someone there to answer his questions about being the Avatar. Aang enters the sanctuary to find statues of his past lives. They also find a lemur. In chasing the lemur, Aang finds the corpse of Gyatso surrounded by those of the Fire Nation soldiers. This triggers his Avatar state, which alerts sages around the world that the Avatar has returned. Meanwhile, Zuko and Iroh have an encounter with Commander Zhao, which leads to an Agni Kai between Zuko and Zhao, and Zhao learning that Zuko has encountered the Avatar. Here's some more information about Chapter 4, The Warriors of Kyoshi. It's the fourth episode of the first season, and is the fourth official episode of the show. It's the first episode that sees a writer who isn't one of the series' creators. This time, it's Nick Malice. And just like episode three, it also sees a new director, Giancarlo Volpe, who has had a hand in many other prominent animated series over the past few years, including Star Wars The Clone Wars, Green Lantern The Animated Series, JLA Adventures Trapped in Time, and most recently, the Netflix series The Dragon Prince. The Warriors of Kyoshi originally aired on March 4th, 2005. Here's a quick synopsis of chapter four. Aang brings Katara and Sokka to Kyoshi Island to ride the giant koi fish, but after a close encounter with the Unagi, the team is captured by a group of female warriors. Aang reveals that he is the reincarnation of Kyoshi Island's founder, Avatar Kyoshi, but the villagers do not believe him and plan to throw the three friends to the Unagi. After Aang frees himself and demonstrates his airbending, the villagers celebrate the arrival of the Avatar. Word of his presence eventually reaches Zuko, who sets sail to Kyoshi Island immediately. Sokka befriends the Kyoshi warrior's leader, Suki, who trains him in their fighting techniques while simultaneously challenging his sexist attitude. Zuko arrives and attacks the village, forcing Team Avatar to leave. As they depart, Aang manages to ride and control the Unagi, using the creature's water spray to douse the flames raging throughout the village, saving it from total ruin. So, what were your thoughts on these two episodes? 
Okay, I have one question. There's that the scene when Aang goes in and he finds Gyatso, like his corpse and all the the firebenders around him. And there's the the idea that he maybe took him out, but went down in the process. I've always been curious, like what you guys think the what went down there. I am so glad you brought this up. I was I've thought about this a lot just from the standpoint of it's basically the only corpse, the only corpse is that we see in the entire series, I think. Is that right? I think it's got to be pretty close to the only time, especially that we see that many of them. Right. Um, so I, I think that I like the idea that he just took all the air out of the room and sort of sacrificed himself. Whoa. Yes. And like, you know, the pressure went out of the room and everybody, you know, I, I don't know, like how else does this airbender? I did not yeah. even think of it that way, but that makes a whole lot of sense. The fact that he probably could just throw all of the air out of the room and kill everybody. It also then makes sense then as to why the corpses are in that specific kind of formation or pattern. Because if you think about it, if the firebenders kind of burned everything or kind of took everything down that way, everything would be a little bit more charred and there might not even be remnants of anybody by that point because they would be, you know, burned and ash and whatever. And if there's no air in the room, they can't firebend. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. This just took a dark turn. Like I wasn't expecting <laughs> it to get that dark that early. But you know what? We are here. I, we're cannonball. We're cannonballing in. How do you want to start this episode? Well, how do you think he killed all those people? <laughs> <laughs> I think to keep with the with the talk about Gyatso, I'm very fascinated with the whole Avatar revealing process. Um, I think Gyatso, mm -hmm. when he and Aang in the flashback are having the conversation, Aang's talking about his reluctance to being the Avatar and thinking that um, the sages and the and the old uh, airbenders got it all wrong, but. Gyatso then says, The only mistake they made was telling you before you turned 16. My question, and it doesn't really go into this a ton, is what are some of the steps that they go through in order to identify the Avatar? And what what did Aang do, I guess, so much quicker than maybe Avatars in, in past lives that they were able to identify him so early? And in doing some research, you know that they mistakenly identify some Avatars and and other people operate under the assumption that they are the avatar without actually being the avatar. So you just wonder kind of how proficient was Aang really, you know, he's a very young uh, boy when he gets his master airbending master tattoos. You just wonder how proficient he really is at everything um, in order to kind of spur that early decision to tell him. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. I think one, it's important that it's the air nation I think because they tend to be more like spiritually enlightened, they have ways to like tell sooner. Like, for example, they've got the the toys from yep. past avatars that he yep. picks up. I think he's more in tune with his past lives early on, which I think is part of how they know quickly. I think it's mentioned at some point in the series. The reason they tell him quickly is um, because they're worried about the war ramping up. And it's sort of like a, a last-ditch effort decision. Like, we need to start training him much sooner than we thought because otherwise the Fire Nation is going to strike early and the war could really get bad. And I think 
that's part of why they tell him mm. at such a young age. Also, have you guys seen um, any of the King of the Hill stuff that Mike and Brian did? I have not. Nope. Is there's an episode that they did where uh, someone thinks that Bobby is a reincarnation of a monk and it pulls from so much of these these same ideas. Wow. Yeah. It's weird to think that they were practicing on King of the Hill for Avatar. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that it was Bobby of all characters. Yeah. <laughs> of all the characters, Bobby. That's very funny. Well, and now that you bring that up, quite a few of the people who worked, at least on these early episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender, also worked on King of the Hill. So they kind of had those collaborative relationships, right. at least. So it, it it's a little weird, but it does make sense that they at least tried some of these things maybe before they had their own creative idea and team. I think as part of the plot for, for telling Aang early, I mean, it, he kind of had to be told early otherwise he would have actually been there when the fire nation attacked so it is interesting how it worked out like if gyatso had waited till he was 16 it actually probably wouldn't have done ang any favors and he probably would have perished with the rest of them i think gyatso is a fascinating character uh because he's just he's shown as a complete goofball as well but then you know we mm -hmm. can see what he can actually do and i think i saw you write a little bit about this brandon but the idea that he had his own statue even when he was alive <laughs> kind of tells me about him a little bit, right? He's on a balcony throwing cakes at like the masters while they're just trying to meditate. He's, you know, horsing around with Aang and he makes a statue of himself. I don't know. I like, I like to, that's my uh, conspiracy theory is that he just, he commissioned it himself. <laughs> well, and the, I, you just don't know. Like, I will be honest that it did kind of put me off a little bit like I'm like is there a continuity thing here did he die and then there were still people left who could then commission this statue you know maybe some of the acolytes or other airbenders maybe it, it took more than one attack by the fire nation to wipe out all the airbenders and in you know the meantime after the first attack they're like oh everything's okay now let's commission this statue of Gyatso who is dead now and we're not going to touch him like we're just going to leave everything there so I don't know how much clout that idea has, but it was just it was just a little weird to me, which is why I kind of wrote it down as a as a point to bring up with you and see what you two thought about it. But it's possible if even if it wasn't an air nomad specifically, there are people who still followed them somewhat. Like we see Guru Patik later, maybe someone from that world. Yeah, other spiritual gurus. And yeah, made a statue in his honor, even if they weren't themselves an air nomad. I like that because. Guru Patik later says he knew he was good friends with, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. In yeah. Gyatso, nice. yeah. We solved it. And close. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but I think that lines up with some of the other stuff. Like, why was Roku's statue in the middle? Like, does that mean they move a statue every time an avatar is born or reincarnated? I had a question on the statues, and Brandon, I think you, you pointed this out too. Do they only glow when Aang goes into the Avatar state and he's close to them? Or do they glow every time? Because if they glow every time he's in the Avatar state, everyone should have known the first time he did it mm -hmm. in the last episode. Well, and I also think, too, that's a great point that you bring up because I think in order to have survived that long in the, in the iceberg, Aang was just perpetually in the Avatar state. Right. So I wonder what that is, too. It's got to be something with proximity because you think about, you know, the the 
time in the calendar year, which we don't necessarily know at this point, even what time of the year it is, which we find out later kind of why that's important and significant. The creators, I think, and, and the development team are realizing now that they've got something and they've got something special. So they kind of have to in, introduce all of this different, call it lore, call it plot device, call it whatever you want, um, in order to establish something greater than the moment that they're in. I think they had to have that giant room full of statues in the in the um, Air Temple Sanctuary in order to kind of stress how great the Avatar's Reach is and how great the Avatar's Reach has been, you know, for X amount of lives. When the, the camera shot pans upward, we can't see all of the statues, but they just go and go and go. Even in this moment, we don't know how long the Avatar's been a thing, how many past lives they've had, you know, what the full depth of their reach is. I think they had to bring in things like that in order to add weight to the situation and what's going on with the hundred year war, but also to kind of calm us as viewers and saying, no, the avatar has done this a time or two. In fact, tens of thousands of times, you know, we're okay here. It's, we don't need to panic yet. I like the idea that it gives an excuse to, you know, flash to a different, like a completely different area of the world. You see like the sages reacting to it and it kind of seamlessly just kind of goes into the other, you know, plot devices, plot lines. Also, it just works with Zuko's struggle as, you know, you're you're going over to Zuko, who's trying to hide the fact that the Avatar is back for himself uh, in the same episode. So it just, I think you're right. It just works really well. Yeah, it, it heightens the stakes for everybody, mm -hmm. for Zuko and for the gang. Yeah, because now there's no, there's no hiding. They've been completely outed. And now, to be honest, everybody's going to be looking for Aang. Because in one way or another, the Hundred Year War has forced people to take sides. And either you're on the side of the Fire Nation or you're on the side of the Resistance. If you're on the side of the Resistance, you're looking for that leader. You're looking for Aang to come in and be the savior. And if you are on the side of the Fire Nation, you have public enemy number one, who everybody in their, in their dog is going to be looking for. Everybody in their polar bear dog, excuse me, <laughs> is going to be looking for. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, the stakes jump through the roof here without necessarily kind of going too far. It's like the perfect balance of, oh, wow, everything's ramping up a little bit now. So speaking of that and like the it ramping up and the, the story getting a little bit more intense, I have to say rewatching it, I was way more interested in the Zuko uh, plot line. Like I found myself kind of tuning out when it was the Aang gang. And then when it was back to Zuko, I was like, oh, yeah, it's time. Yeah, with um, his interactions with Zhao you're talking about? Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I found that really compelling. I, I guess I didn't realize this until now, but um, do you know who voices Zhao? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. I This blew me away. Jason Isaacs. Um, it's uh, yeah. Lucius Malfoy. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing that at least took me off guard and again, doing just a tiny bit of character research on him He's not an American actor. He's from the UK and speaks with an accent. I mean, even in the Harry Potter series, he speaks with an accent. And his kind of American accent or non-British accent, we'll call it, is impeccable. Like, it's really, really awesome. So he can kind of hide behind that and doesn't have any... We don't have any preconceived ideas of who the character should be based on who voice who the voice is. Because, it, yeah, it's, it's a big surprise. Right. I think... It, they mentioned the art book um, when they were 
writing Zhao and looking to cast him, they mentioned him as like the kind of actor they were looking for. And their casting director was like, well, what if I just get him? And they did it, which is awesome. So awesome. <laughs> so awesome. That's funny. Okay, I had a few points on the the Zuko side just to to bring up and talk about. Um, first of all, I think it pretty quickly sets up. So Zuko says, um, like they are having this back and forth about Zhao bragging, oh, the Earth Kingdom's going to fall. We're going to, you know, have it. And Zuko says something like, If my father thinks the rest of the world will follow him willingly, then he is a fool. And I think that was pretty bold of him to say for what we find out why he was banished but also that he's already sort of more aware of how difficult it is in the different nations and that it's not going to be this like we can't just make everybody the same we can't just do this sort of thing so and that really comes into play in you know book three but um i thought that was you know in the third episode laying that out as kind of an offline um actually had some significance to it i think it's a comment on dictatorships in general that those who are perceived to be in power are very out of touch with those who they're attempting to rule i mean this isn't anything new right um in actual history it's the same concept this is also a, a plot line and a plot device that comes back later in the legend of korra in the final book of the legend of korra um where a perceived leader is out of touch with their potential subjects and just the difficulty at which it is to rule the world um, in this case with, with the Fire Lord. So, um, yeah, the fact that Zuko has been banished for this long and has still learned so much in his pursuit of the Avatar, it's, it's telling of his character outside of this kind of angsty teenager person that we see. He's very in tune with uh, what, what a lot of people kind of expect and what a lot of people want. And I think even though there's a lot of Fire Nation rule... It's more just being complicit with people kind of living in your town and in your community and not necessarily being willing to abide by all of those customs, those traditions, those rules. It's just, okay, we've got a new person collecting our taxes or we've got a new person, you know, with their added name on the the town, whatever. I think it's an interesting kind of, um, it's sort of the downfall of Ozai as well is that... Zuko saying that to him would be treasonous, but if he was able to listen to that, and we're glad he's not, if he believed that the other nations were a threat and it wouldn't be easy, maybe he would have been successful taking over the world if he didn't underestimate everybody. That's a good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He might have used the Scorch Earth technique a little bit sooner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. On that, I think it, this episode sets up, I, like, there's not a wasted line on the Zuko side. It's like Zhao saying, your own father doesn't want you. You have the scar to prove it. Like, all that just sets up right away our interest of, like, oh, my gosh, what happened to Zuko? Why was he banished? Did his father do this? Like, it's, I don't know, it, it all lines up really well. Um, and just from a character development standpoint, like, when they do their Agni Kai, their lines right before it, Zuko says, I refuse to let him win. And Xiao says, this will be over quickly, which is perfect for each of them, right? It's it's resilience and perseverance versus recklessness. Uh, so I don't know. I just think it's really well written. Uh, I enjoyed that. And Iroh stepping in too, like that he is Zuko's protector, but that he's still concerned with 
his honor the way Zuko is and wants to respect that. Like he doesn't jump in until after Zuko has finished the match and then Zhao tries to get in a cheap shot afterwards. Yeah, I think that that was a, a moment that struck me too. And it is very similar to uh, from one of the first two episodes from the our last podcast episode when we talked about this. When Zuko leaves the Southern Water Tribe alone when Aang gives himself up to go with him, that's very honorable, right? And I think that's part of that royal bloodline, that that self-insistence that I need to be honorable. Um, when Zuko wins the Agni Kai and spares Zhao, which he didn't have to do, and in fact, the honorable thing would have not been to spare Zhao, Zhao then tries to get that cheap shot in, and Iroh's reaction is even... I think more pointed and more poignant when he says, So this is how the great commander Zhao acts in defeat? Disgraceful. To have a retired Fire Nation general call you disgraceful is inc like incredible. And I know that it's his uncle and all this stuff and familial ties, whatever. But that was very powerful for me. Yeah, it sums up. Uncle Iroh's perspective on Zuko from the very start. Like, it doesn't take until the last couple of episodes to, for it to be, like, you know, explicitly stated, but he says, Even in exile, my nephew is more honorable than you. Just setting up that, you know, Zuko doesn't think he has any honor, right? He thinks he's lost it. My honor. But, um, yeah, it's clear that from Uncle Iroh's perspective, he's just trying to make Zuko see that he hasn't, you know, that he's very honorable. So it's so nice. I was just going to say, we also learn here that Ginseng tea is Iroh's favorite. <laughs> That's maybe I, the most I, important detail. <laughs> I love that. But to be, to be honest about that, I question that 100% because of later when... Eventually, Iroh does get his own tea shop, right? It's not the ginseng dragon. It's the jasmine dragon. <laughs> Ooh, and, he talks about, and he talks about jasmine tea and all this other stuff. Like in many of the episodes where they're in the Earth Kingdom later, um, I don't know if that was meant to just be a throwaway line or not, but I question, I question the legitimacy of, of ginseng tea being Iroh's favorite tea. I'm, this I is, could totally this is be Iroh's wrong, character arc. Is is <laughs> what truly is his favorite flavor of tea. I I love when Zuko throws a little fit and destroys the tea, and he doesn't even blink. He doesn't react. He's just more tea, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Oh, it's so Iroh. The only other thing that I wanted to point out that I thought was like interesting from watching it. I don't think they use the replay sort of visual very much where in an action scene, they like show it multiple times from different angles, but they do it with, they did here. with Zuko's leg sweep, right? Yeah. And the only time I can think about that they use that is in the, or can you guys think of when that other time is? I can't remember if they've like reused from different perspectives, the way that they just replayed that leg sweep from other, other angles. It did bug me a little bit how when Aang was, or not Aang, excuse me, when Zuko was deflecting the the fire jabs from Zhao, his like sweeping away motion, that frame by frame was identical. They just repeated it. Um, <laughs> and I was like, really, really, you guys? Well, I, I, it hit me just because of the kind of iconic scene in the finale where it like has that replay 
of Aang confronting Ozai. Um, and I think it happens three times where he does all those cool, like, airbending things. Um, and so, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I'll be looking out for it, but I think these are the two that I can remember where they just explicitly replayed it. Yeah. Evan, is there anything that you didn't really get to jump into? Um, you had some kind of dark, uh, darker ones. You thought, how did it? Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'll make this episode a bummer sandwich. Um, <laughs> I was thinking all the kids that Aang is friends with at the Southern Air Temple. And because everyone knows like the general way the Avatar cycle works, that once one Avatar dies, the next one, they're reincarnated. The Fire Nation and their like genocide of the air nomads would probably be focused on people about Aang's age because they would know when um, Roku passed and they would be looking for that point in time for reincarnation. So they probably would have been killing children first. <laughs> Ooh. Oh my god. I think we oh. need to change your your segment from Evan's musings to Evan's morbid musings. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I love it. This is a kid show. <laughs> I love and, it. But that's one of those kind of unfortunate things that the story doesn't explicitly address. It's just one of those underlying things of, yeah, Max, this is a kid show, and that's why they can't explicitly say... Well, the Fire Nation hunted down all these children today and blah, blah, blah. But it's just something obviously implied. Otherwise, we wouldn't be discussing it right now. Um, and it's, yeah, that is a big bummer. Big bummer sandwich. I'm just glad that the next episode that we're going to talk about is less of a bummer sandwich. Yeah, it's a fun one. <laughs> Beautiful transition. Thank you. I didn't have too many thoughts about this one. I thought it was good. Um from a standpoint of character development and all that, especially for Sokka, holy cow. And also, I guess, for Aang and Katara a little bit, although they have that weird sort of jealousy, flirty, kind of bizarre thing that kind of gets... I don't know. It's I guess it's this sort of episode that sets them up kind of against each other. Not against each other, but like that it's going to be a romance. Oh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is this kind of the episode that solidifies that he's trying to you know court Katara I think so I think there there are things that I like and dislike about it I think similar to what you said it feels kind of contrived it's like something that we see a lot like the guy getting a lot of girls paying attention to him to make the one other girl he really likes jealous um and it maybe feels a little out of place for someone like Aang who has grown up in a more like spiritual setting uh somewhat less gendered society than maybe some of the other um other nations that that's sort of how he would act but at the same time he's like a 12 year old boy it's not outlandish i think the thing that i do like about this episode is that it starts very early on that this is um feelings that they both have like it kind of goes up and down throughout the series ang pretty much always likes katara Katara, her feelings kind of maybe go in waves a little bit. But I think this is the first time we get a sense that like Katara has some like romantic interest in Aang. I wonder how much of it is romantic, at least in this episode, versus how much of it is just Aang needing kind of attention 
in a way. You know, he does the whole marble trick and that sort of a thing and sees how it doesn't necessarily get a big reaction from Katara. But then later on the island, when he does the marble trick for all of the other young girls on the island, they all freak out. And actually, the whole community kind of freaks out. It gives us the greatest scene in Avatar, Frothing Mouth Guy. Dude, <laughs> I... I am so infatuated with Frothing Moth Guy. Um, it just hilarious. But I don't necessarily know if I would call it kind of romantic or anything other than maybe attention-seeking behavior. Um, and I am by no means like a psychologist or a doctor in that way at all. But I, I just don't... Doctor of love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, doctor of love, exactly. I just don't know if I see it as like pursuant of relationship right now that's fair well regardless ang is kind of annoying in this one <laughs> he uh yeah he he wants that attention i was i was um kind of okay actually this is a bit of a break from what we were just talking about so when ang gets there and he jumps in the water to you know surf on some koi fish I think it's the only time in the series that he says, you know, he's like, Go! and I think that's the only time that we ever see Aang cold or talk about being cold or anything like that. Yeah. Otherwise, he's always in these, you know, really thin monk robes, but he's perfectly fine. Meanwhile, Sokka and Katara in their like full hoodies, like, <laughs> and it's, I, I think it, I mean, I, I, I looked into this a little bit, but the idea that airbenders can sort of warm themselves with their breath sort of kind of like firebenders but mm -hmm. they have control over their you know circulation stuff if you think about it they're on top of these giant mountains and they don't need coats or anything like that so maybe it's taught early on or something like that i think that's something that tenzin says explicitly in Korra. oh yeah and it's it's based on a real meditative practice where these monks can raise their body temperature oh it's like a legitimate thing in our world yeah through 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 breath control and breathing and awesome i love that that would explain why ang is never cold can i do you did you guys like this episode or am, am i kind of alone and not necessarily feeling like this episode is as good as even the three that we've watched so far and i know that we talked in the first episode of the podcast about waiting for the the creators in the series to hit their stride i felt like with this episode like some of the animation took a huge step forward which was awesome to see and see kind of the quality of that increase you're talking about when ang runs across the lake really fast that's yeah absolutely that was <laughs> awesome quality. um and then but the story just doesn't seem to it just doesn't click with me like i'm not i really the only things that i really like about this episode are the fact that we see another avatar in Kyoshi, and Kyoshi's an awesome, awesome avatar. The more we learn about her character later, I love Avatar Kyoshi, um, and especially with the recent release of of that extra material, that book and all that, the books and all that other stuff. Big fan of Kyoshi, but I just didn't really like this episode. Yeah, I feel that. I think it's tough because I've also seen this one a million times, so I'm not sure if I'm just tired of it, but... It doesn't hit as many of those big moments. It's not as layered as the other episodes so far. Mm -hmm. um, there's very little Zuko. Um, whatever layering we get is still like 
it's half Aang and Katara, half Sokka and Suki, which is like good, but it's a bit easier to balance those storylines. It's not as impressive the way they're handling it. Yeah, I think it's fine. I liked it from a standpoint that Sokka absolutely needed to get his butt kicked. <laughs> yeah, n- now that you say that, you know that is definitely something that I appreciate as well. And it does advance kind of his own individual character forward. The thing that I that almost takes away from that too is the whole episode Sokka's interactions with the Kyoshi warriors are full of this kind of uh, uh, gender-specific role play, if we want to call it that. And then, you know, at the end, after all, at the end of this episode, after all this growth has occurred with Sokka, he and Suki are standing behind that house while Zuko and the other firebenders are attacking the village. And Suki says something like, I am a warrior, but I'm a girl too. Kisses Sokka on the cheek, which is, ooh, flame, spark, (laughs) ah, lovely. That moment was even confusing to me because it almost undoes some of the work and the progress that I think Sokka has. Uh, and I there I just want to I just really want to find things that I like about this episode, but I am struggling mightily to find things that I I really like about it because there's always that counter. Like that would have been an awesome arc for Sokka, and then if it would have just ended that way, then Imagine how Sokka then changes from this point on for the rest of the show. But instead, Suki kind of likes that Sokka is this way. And even though she was able to work with him and teach him some of their customs and their fighting traditions, she liked kind of that antagonistic treatment from Sokka and validates it with that ending interaction. So I just, I just, I just struggle with this episode so much as I've said this many times this, this podcast, but This episode is just not (laughs) not doing it for me. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I think as much as it tries to do by the end of it, the girl is still the prize, which undermines everything. I'm glad that I'm glad that they brought Suki back into it later, Um, because I think that originally they were thinking this would be a one off. So because she's she's an awesome character. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Suki's character, and I'm a big fan of this whole idea of this super elite, um, all all women fighting squad that honestly is really really capable. Um, because you see them in combat against some of these firebenders. Like, that's one of the things that I do like is that again it it introduces this strong female character group set, and even later when we are reunited with Suki. That's the only Kyoshi warrior that we really get to know. Um, Not that there's necessarily a ton of room to get to know more of the Kyoshi warriors, but you know, that I think is a missed opportunity for me. Um, Not meeting more of them or not necessarily even really revisiting Kyoshi Island, at least with the whole, whole group, like part of the group goes back to Kyoshi Island later for something, but even even though this was designed to be a one-off thing, I think too many elements were just completely severed after this. Again, for me to still feel like, like it it just it just has me asking, okay, then why even have this in the first place? Like, why even have this pit stop here other than to ride the elephant koi? You know, maybe I I, I don't know. I think it's tough. It's the fourth episode, and so they need to. 
they need to get rid of some of Sokka's bad traits. They need to introduce like the fantasy element. Like it kind of introduces these huge animals that kind of coexist with the, um, the humans. I think it's interesting on the Sugi note, right? She kind of becomes part of team avatar, but she's always left out in, in stuff. Yeah. She's not a full, she's not a full-time member of team avatar. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I, I think, and Evan, you can hop in on this too. I think it's because they already address and have a member of Team Avatar that is a non-bender, and that's Sokka. Mm. I think because of Sokka's character progression, becoming the the strategic planner guy, becoming the um, you know whatever weapon of choice guy he is, um, I think they don't need more of that. They need more of the other bending disciplines or the other nation representation and Suki is I think a right now at least is a better character than Sokka but at their core they're too similar to have her be in team avatar full-time hmm. I think she kind of serves as that breath of fresh air when we um come back and we see her again but I think too much of Suki would have been a bad thing for her character and for that development. Interesting. Yeah, I think she's got her own group already. She's, Brandon, like you said, very capable. It's going to be less interesting. She doesn't have as much room to grow as some of the other characters. That's it. That's a really good point, yeah. What what would be her character development? She's already like this kind of badass you know, warrior that's confident and sure of herself. The fact that she's another non-bender, I feel like is an important thing I haven't noticed in this episode before. In addition to pushing Sokka to like think of women as people, <clears throat> it also pushes him to realize that being a non-bender can be strong. They take over the whole gang. They blindfold and tie up Aang and Katara. I think this is the first time that Sokka gets a good example of non-benders being really capable that's, in this world. That's a really good point, yeah. And I think it also took Sokka leaving his own village to also start to understand that and understand that, you know, right now he's just a guy with a boomerang, right? And that's kind of his MO the whole series until until later, right? But by seeing, yeah, exactly right, Evan, by seeing a non-bender proficient in their own combat style and, and weaponry, they can take down the avatar. Granted, it's not a fully realized avatar, but they took down the avatar. I think one other kind of redeeming factor about this that also shows growth of a different character is um, the interaction right after the second Unagi debacle when Aang goes back out to ride the Unagi um, with all of the other girls from the village. He obviously is not successful, kind of gets owned by the Unagi, almost drowns, but Katara bends the water out of Aang without even seeing the water. So I think this is a huge step forward for Katara because it's showing that even without a teacher in the traditional sense, even by just by being with Aang and, and seeing his bending, she feels like she can start taking some of these risks with her bending because, you know, before maybe she could only bend the water that she could see. And I think that's also referenced later in the series that Katara hasn't really bent water that she can't see. Um, I think it's, it's 
they're trying to fill up a dam scene um in a in a future episode i think it's might it might be book two I, um, I think it's jet i think it's coming up soon yeah i knew it was the episode with jet i just can't remember where that falls um wow i i can't believe that jet's already in book one i thought jet was not until book two um but I think I think that's just a big step forward for her as she continues to gain confidence in herself as a as a bender now as a legitimate contributing force to this team. I wrote that one down too uh, while I was watching it, pulling the water out of his lungs. I mean, she saved his life. We the Avatar cycle would have been pretty much over now. Um, but also when she was getting out of the water, she does this really powerful water bending move that shoots her back onto shore, and I mean it's. Before this, we've seen her move some snow. We've seen her like do the iceberg thing. That was kind of an accident. That was like the first really powerful. Like you, you don't have any teacher, any like, so you can kind of tell she's a prodigy. Um, I mean, I, that's kind of the interpretation I get from it. Yeah, exactly. Me too. I really like the idea that the Unagi was sort of the protector of Kyoshi Island. And that's why the Fire Nation couldn't ever, like, you know, take it over or anything like that. And so because Aang is distracting it, right, while Katara and him are, Zuko is allowed to, you know, actually get on shore because the Unagi's dealing with Aang. Otherwise, you know, his ship probably would have been destroyed. That's insane. I didn't even think about that, but that makes so much sense. And then I guess at the end, a moment, I mean, the, the village is on fire, right? A moment that... I was viewing as Aang finally getting his crap together and being able to, you know, show his physical strength in getting the Unagi under control is actually just Aang alerting the Unagi that the village is in trouble. I need your help here. And then the Unagi just douses out the fire. Like, totally different. And, like, that makes so much sense. Well, I, I don't know, like... It seems like Aang's manhandling that, that Unaki pretty hard. But um, but at least the standpoint that that's its like territory and it doesn't let, you know, big ships come through or something like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to do it for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion so far, as we certainly have. We'll be back soon with more conversation about the first season of Avatar The Last Airbender. We're now live on Facebook and Twitter. Just search at previous.pod on Facebook and at previous underscore pod on Twitter. Give us a like or a follow and interact with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the series as we keep the dialogue going. A big thanks to my co-hosts, Evan and Max, for being a part of the podcast. We'll see you soon. Yep, yep.